Lord's Day is a special one, the first when we remember the Lord's resurrection. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together once more on this Lord's Day morning, this first day of the week, when our Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. We thank you, Lord, for the joy of knowing him. And we pray, O God, that the resurrected Christ will stand among us here and bless us in this hour of worship. We commit ourselves to you now and pray that all we say and do may be honoring in your sight, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We sing number 228, Christ the Lord is risen today, hallelujah, sons of men and angels say, hallelujah, 228.
reading this morning is from John's Gospel, chapter 20. John's Gospel, chapter 20. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark unto the sepulchre, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciples, the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and I, we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulchre. So they ran both together. and The other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulchre. And he stooping down and looking in saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him. O oh Lord, our God and Heavenly Father, we thank Thee again for this privilege of meeting in the name of Jesus, and we worship You, the Sovereign Lord, Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We worship You for this resurrection morning, and uh, sing our hallelujahs, our praises to You, for You are truly amazing in your, uh, in your works and ways, in your plans and purposes. Thank you, Lord, that in the fullness of time you sent your Son to be our Savior. We thank you for his perfect life and atoning death. We thank you, Lord, that on that resurrection morning, even as Jesus said he would rise, so he rose on the third day, according to the scriptures. And so we thank you that uh, the work on the cross uh, 
was completed and, and, and perfect and acceptable in your sight. We thank you that you vindicated the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is indeed the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He is indeed the Son of God with power. And we thank you, Lord, that the, re the resurrection reveals all this to us. And we thank you, Lord, that the same Jesus ascended on high and led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And we thank you for the, the day of Pentecost, the risen conquering Savior who sat down at the right hand of the Father. We thank you that he sent the Spirit in order to empower us and to help us. So, Lord, we uh, give you thanks for this amazing work of redemption. Thank you, Lord, for a completed work, nothing to add to it. Now, O oh Lord, is the work of application. We pray, O oh God, that uh, the good news of Jesus Christ, as it's proclaimed throughout our world today, may uh, do its effective work in the hearts and lives of men and women and boys and girls. And we pray, O oh God, that many will come out of their deadness to sin and Satan and come to newness of life in Jesus Christ. We thank you that uh, this is the gospel, that uh, we are born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, Lord, we uh, praise you for these facts and, uh, and, and for, for this presence of your Holy Spirit. So, God, our Father, we pray you will bless this day to us and bless to all the people who meet in Jesus' name today throughout our world. We thank you, Father, that many already coming towards the end of their their Lord's Day, having uh, heard your messages and having joined together with your people in singing hymns of praise and hearing your word. So we thank you for them. And we are joining in now, and others will be arising in the, in the uh, West to yet praise you in the coming hours. So, Lord, we thank you that praises go to you all round the world on this, your day. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that, that many lives will be touched. Lord, we are so sorry to see so many in our own country without a thought for Jesus Christ and what he did at Calvary and what uh, he accomplished there and, and, uh, and the resurrection day today. No thought at all, going about their usual business and activities or enjoying themselves in the country or at the seaside. Oh, God, we pray. Have mercy, O oh Lord, upon our fellow countrymen. Grant our God you'll have mercy and, uh, and lighten their darkness and turn their hearts toward you. We pray for members of our own, own family who don't know you. Have mercy upon them. And uh, grant our Father that you'll bring conviction of sin into their hearts and lives. And grant them no peace until they find it in you. Oh God, have mercy upon them. Oh Father, we pray you bless every preacher of the gospel today. Enable them to proclaim your truth with power. Grant our Father that many hearts and lives will be touched. Bring many to glory today, we pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray for those not able to be with us again, many who are unwell and sick, and, and, and we pray, O oh God, you draw very close to them. May they be conscious of your presence. Help them, O oh God, in their time of need. Grant our Father you'll come to those who are not, or not able to help themselves. Oh, God, we pray, come to them and may they be very conscious, Lord, of a presence and a help and a comfort and a solace and a, a strength that is beyond them. Lord, we, we pray, especially for Colin, who would be loving to be here today. We pray for him in the 
sadness of his loss. We pray for him as he is uh, getting over this nasty uh, disease. We pray, O God, that you'll be very near and dear to him. So, Lord, we commit all these things to you. We need you, Lord, every hour we need you. We pray that you'll bless us in this time of worship. For we ask these mercies through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's sing number 235. 235. Lo, in the grave he lay, Jesus my Saviour, waiting the coming day, Jesus my Lord. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. Two, three, five. In the passage we read earlier from John's Gospel, chapter 20, we'll look particularly at verse 29, where Jesus says to Thomas, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. You know the old proverb, seeing is believing. There's a lot of good sense in it. We don't believe something 
unlikely happens just because someone says so. We know what some people are like. They can't always, you can't always trust their testimony. They might be very sincere, but you can't always accept what they, what they say. And so we respond, I can't believe that until I, until I see it for myself first. People believe in flying saucers, well, some people do, and uh, tell us they have seen them, but we don't take their word for it. They've probably seen some low-flying aircraft or something at night or some physical phenomena in the, in the clouds. There are those who say they've uh, seen Loch Ness monster, but uh, you're not convinced. Until you've witnessed it yourself, you won't believe. It's only when you've seen some unlikely occurrence for yourself that the truth can no longer be doubted. And so you say, well, I didn't think that could happen. But seeing it, I believe it. Well, the first disciples of Jesus were no different to us. As we know from the other Gospels, they weren't going to trust the testimony of excitable ladies who had gone down to the tomb where the body of Jesus had been placed and had come back saying that he'd risen from the dead. No. And then we have here in John's Gospel some further information concerning Mary Magdalene's encounter with Jesus and of Peter and John running to the tomb to find it empty. And in Luke's Gospel, he tells us of two disciples walking to Emmaus and how Jesus revealed himself to them and how they had doubled back to Jerusalem to tell the rest. But then later on, that same evening, Luke and John record how the Lord himself came and stood among them and greeted them with the words, Peace be with you. And he showed them his hands and his side, and we are told the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. But one of the original twelve disciples was absent, Thomas. That was his Hebrew name. Didymus was his Greek equivalent. It means twin. We don't know who the other twin was, male or female. Well, anyway, when the other disciples told him the good news that they had seen the Lord, well, he was very, very skeptical. We've seen the Lord, he said to them, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, let's be clear. From what we know about Thomas, he was a devoted follower of Jesus. I want you to remember that. Very honest man, very down-to-earth sort of fellow. You might say he's a bit gloomy, a bit pessimistic. It's only John in his gospel that tells us about Thomas in any detail. In chapter 11, verse 16, Thomas shows leadership and courage when uh, <coughs> Jesus hears about Lazarus' death and he stays a while before going. And then uh, the disciples were not sure whether he was dead or not because Jesus said, Lazarus is sleeping. And so they thought, oh, well, he's doing all right if he's sleeping. Uh, but then uh, Jesus has to say clearly, no, he's dead. And uh, now we're going to go. And uh, Thomas says, well, let's also go with him that we might die with him. <laughs> so you'd be a bit pessimistic, you see. But of course, Jesus uh, really was pointing to his own death as well and what he would accomplish in Jerusalem. 
So he hadn't, uh, doesn't always understand what uh, Jesus is saying. And that same mindset is discernible in chapter 14, verse 5. He's perplexed by Jesus' words. He doesn't understand uh, and blurts out that he doesn't know where Jesus is going. Jesus said he was going to leave them. And he said, you know where I'm going. You know the way. Well, Thomas says, no, I don't. I don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? But we're very thankful that he did ask that question, aren't we? Because otherwise we might not have had those wonderful words of Jesus. In verse 16, I am, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, here is Thomas again. When the other disciples told him that they'd seen the Lord, well, he wasn't convinced. Now, of course, in the case of the disciples, they all should have expected Jesus to rise from the dead. They should have expected him to die, and they should have expected him to rise because Jesus told them on three separate occasions. He told them he would be taken and crucified and on the third day he would rise from the dead. But they'd not taken it in. Their minds were dull, we're told. All the disciples then were shocked and dismayed at what had happened. And they were all skeptical of the reports that Jesus had been raised from the dead. But this account of Thomas is especially brought to our attention by John to highlight the issue of doubt concerning the resurrection of Jesus. Remember, the Apostle John, who writes this gospel, wants us all to believe the truth concerning Jesus Christ. So credible evidence is crucially important. God knows that, and uh, he has provided credible evidence. <coughs> so we have this count of doubting Thomas, he's, he's often called. And so this account is given for our benefit. Thomas says that he won't believe unless he has visible, tangible Evidence. Now, some people today seem to think that people of old were gullible and naive, taken in easily. But they went, you know, they were no different to us. Anybody would think, you know, we've got a very high opinion of ourselves in the 21st century, but uh, they were no different to us. They didn't take something just because somebody else had said so. They wanted as much proof as we would want today. Thomas shows that like us today, people are not easily fooled when they really put their minds to it. Having said that, I have to say that in some things, we can be easily fooled. And we can be brainwashed, in fact. Especially by the way the media works these days. And as it worked in the first century, of course. I mean, the crowds in Jerusalem, they were whipped up to call for Jesus to be crucified, whereas only a few days earlier they'd been saying, uh, praise God and hallelujah and, uh, and save now, as they, as they saw Jesus coming into Jerusalem. They were all, all over him. And then the media comes and says, get rid of him, crucify him. And then they're all whipped up, and they're all shouting, crucify him, crucify And we know no different today, are we, you see? We can all be whipped up so easily into uh, saying the opposite of what we first might have believed. The Russian people, generally at this very moment, are believing all, all that the state is telling them. You see, the media is telling them. They're not hearing any other news, are they? Only what the state tells them to believe. Ah, but when it comes especially to religious people, 
uh, religious belief. People are generally more cynical, aren't they, when it comes to religious belief, tend to be generally more cynical. And in this matter of the resurrection, Thomas's distrust of what his friends were saying, I think is quite understandable. People do just do not rise from the grave. And certainly, they do not rise after such an uh, excruciating death, like death by crucifixion. Everybody, from the uh, Jewish authorities who wanted him dead, to the Roman governor, they all had convincing proof that Jesus was dead. And then there were two important members of the Jewish council, Joseph and uh, Nicodemus. They went, uh, went associated with the apostles. They were secret disciples. Uh, but they too realized he was dead. And they took his dead body and laid it in the tomb. So it was clear to all that Jesus was dead and that he was buried. And everyone knew that dead bodies placed in a tomb do not rise up alive. That is, of course, except at the command of Jesus. Because Lazarus had actually come out alive, as you know, chapter 11, uh, with the grave cloths around him after lying in a tomb for four days. But now, there's no one like Jesus around, is there, to uh, call him to come out of the tomb. After all, Jesus had not come down from the cross, as the Jewish authorities were wanting to do, to prove his claims of messiahship. Instead, Jesus had died and uh, he had been buried. So, you can understand, for Thomas it was very clear, unless I see, I will not believe. Well, the following Sunday, Thomas was present with the rest of the disciples, and Jesus came again and stood among them and greeted them, Shalom, peace to you. Incidentally, this is very significant that Jesus should meet again on the first day of the week where the New Testament church was assembled. Jesus, you see, already setting the pattern for Christians to meet together on the Lord's day where he will meet with them. Yeah, he met with them on Easter Sunday in the evening. And then eight days later, Sunday again, and he meets with them again. So there you are, the Lord's Day. That's why we meet on a Sunday, not a Saturday. This is the new day of the Lord for us. And he was encouraging them then, you see, to meet together, to be present, not to be absent like Thomas was on the first Sunday night. <laughs> yeah, meet together on the Lord's Day. Not in the morning only, but at night too. Remember, this is the evening. Yeah. The whole day is the Lord's. The day of Pentecost also, when Jesus sent the Spirit, also turned out to be the first day of the week that year. Well, anyway, Jesus appeared again, and he stood among them as they met together, and look how gracious and understanding he was to Thomas. What Thomas asked for, he got. Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I won't believe. That's what he said to the disciples. The Lord Jesus Christ says to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand, thrust it into my side, 
and be not faithless, but believing. But it's wonderful, isn't it, how, how the Lord is so gracious to him and uh, offering his hands and his sight. And, of course, it led him to worship. He cried out in astonishment and praise, my Lord and my God. You see what we have in these gospel accounts. There's a build-up of evidence. These many sightings are recorded for the benefit of people, not only then, but all down the centuries. They're recorded as part of God's word to us. All these disciples, you see, were eyewitnesses. They were actually present. They had been present, of course, from the the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in Galilee, in the days of John the Baptist. They were present to hear all the gracious words that proceeded from his mouth. And they were present at the time of his arrest and crucifixion. And though at a distance, they saw Jesus' death on the cross and knew where his body had been laid. And they saw him in his resurrection body and they ate and drank in his physical resurrected presence. They saw him ascend bodily into that glory cloud that took him to heaven. And they were recipients of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost as Jesus had promised. At the end of this chapter, John states that he had presented in writing enough evidence in order that we might believe that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one that the Old Testament points to, the one promised and prophesied, and that by believing in him, we might have life through his name. God does not call anyone to believe without informing them of the facts and the meaning of those facts. The Christian faith is not a leap into the dark. The facts are set before us, clear and plain. The evidence for the resurrection is built up from various uh, uh, sources, various angles, so that uh, it is one of the best attested facts of all history. But knowledge of the facts and seeing the evidence is one thing. Believing is another. I therefore want to alter the old proverb because it doesn't quite present the whole truth. Let me give you a riddle. Seeing is not believing, but believing is seeing. Okay? Have you ever thought to yourself, if only I had seen Jesus when he was here on earth, seen him heal the sick, raise the dead, seen him in his resurrection body, I would have been the first to follow him. Well, it's a great mistake, you know, to think that contact with Jesus via the senses, seeing him, hearing him, being in his presence, would produce faith in him. Many, many people touched Jesus during his earthly ministry, heard him, saw him, dined with him even, during those years on earth, yet very few believed. Indeed, instead of trusting themselves to Jesus, so many rejected him. And as we've said, so many of them shouted for him to be crucified. The guards who had been placed at the tomb, they didn't believe. When the resurrection took place, Instead, they accepted a bribe to tell lies that Jesus' disciples had come by night 
and stolen the body. There's another old saying which goes, there's none so blind as those who will not see. It's reminiscent of Jeremiah's words concerning his own people. Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 21 says, Hear now now this, O foolish people, and without understanding, which have eyes and see not, which have ears and hear not. You remember Jesus told that story. I did call attention to it a little bit on Friday. The rich man and Lazarus. The rich man had everything in life. And poor old Lazarus was a beggar who uh, sat by his table and received a few crumbs that fell from his board. And we're told they both died and the rich man went to hell while Lazarus was a believer and was in Abram's bosom. The rich man wanted Lazarus to be sent to earth to warn the rich man's brothers of the place of torment that he was in. And Abram replied, Your brothers have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they had the Bible. God's word, which gives plenty of warnings. But the rich man replied, If someone rose from the dead, then they would believe, then they would repent and believe. But Abram answered, If your brothers don't accept the Bible, if they don't accept Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced even if someone were to rise from the dead. Now Jesus told that story. And how true it is, how true it is. Someone has risen from the dead, it's Jesus himself, and they haven't all flocked to believe him, have they? Someone has risen actually from the dead, and there's credible evidence, overwhelming evidence, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and they still don't believe. They have eyes. Jesus said something similar to Jeremiah. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. We must go beyond the sphere of the senses. It's not seeing with the senses that produces faith. While faith in Jesus Christ is no leap into the dark and is based on facts, based on things that really happened, Arguments in themselves are not enough. Facts in themselves are not sufficient. You can win scholarly arguments, and I know that. You can win scholarly arguments, but that will not bring about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, Thomas was graciously given plenty of grounds for believing that the Jesus who died the death of the cross was alive. Jesus encouraged him. And Thomas heard him speak and saw his hands and saw his side. He was even invited to touch the nail prints in Jesus' hands and the gash in his side. It was convincing evidence that Jesus was truly risen from the dead. And again, as with Thomas's questioning earlier, when he had the most famous words from Jesus about being uh, the way, the truth, and the life. So here, I think we can uh, thank God for Thomas's doubts, because as one ancient preacher stated, we would never have had such full proof that Christ rose from the dead. But you see, Thomas drew more from that experience than what physical sight and touch could give him. 
he was given to see his Savior, to see his Lord and his God, so that he could cry out in worship, my, my Lord and my God. You see, faith went beyond what the finger revealed. Sight, sound, and touch told Thomas that before him was someone who had been wounded. But faith saw something more. He saw his Lord. He saw his God. Now, dear friends, is that true of us? Is that true of you and me? Have we come to the end of ourselves and seen the Lord Jesus Christ for who he really is? Is he yours? Can you say that he is my Lord? He is my God. Is Jesus personal to you this morning? You know the facts. You know all the truth. But is he yours? Do you believe it in your heart of hearts? Now Jesus here pronounces a very special blessing on those who have never seen the Lord with a physical eye, never heard his actual voice, never touched his hand and sighed, and yet have believed. That word blessed, very special. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It's a beatitude. And it occurs a few times in the Psalms, the Hebrew equivalent. And, of course, it's used by our Lord Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount as he introduces the Sermon, what we call the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Psalm 1 begins, blessed is the man. Psalm 2 closes with the same word, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Psalm 32 begins, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord doesn't impute iniquity. It's a congratulatory expression, this word bless. It's not the same word as, you know, bless the Lord, O my soul. It's a different word altogether. Some modern translations have happy it suggests a highly privileged position. In other words, it's a wonderful thing to be a Christian. When you look out on this sad world with its frustrations, its anxieties and its woes, full of people without God and without hope, we are in an amazingly privileged position if we are Christians today. All over our country at this moment, people are seeking and longing for happiness and it is really appalling to see the ways in which people are seeking it. And for the vast majority, all their searching only leads in the end to more misery. That is the deceitfulness of sin, dear friends. That's the deceitfulness of Satan. That is the deceitfulness of human rebellion against God. It's always offering happiness. And while it may produce a happy feeling for a time, it leads finally to unhappiness and final misery. The gospel, the good news concerning Jesus Christ, brings true happiness. What a blessed and privileged position Christians are in. And you know, it lasts not only for time, but for eternity, you see. That's the wonderful thing. And of course, these disciples, it is, tells us earlier, they were glad to see the Lord, the risen Lord. It confirmed their faith in him as the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. It would have convinced them that Jesus was no liar. When he said that he was the resurrection and the life, he meant it, and that he was in very truth the life 
and the light of the world. We today can be just as glad, just as happy, just as confident. We can know a joy in the risen Lord that goes beyond what even the disciples experienced that first Easter day. You know, Peter, he should, he should know. Peter should know if ever a person would know. He was there at the time. He heard this blessing that Jesus pronounces on future generations of believers. And I imagine Jesus' words were in his mind when he wrote his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8, speaking to converts in Asia Minor who have never, had never seen the Lord in person. And he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy and inexpressible and full of glory. And you know, this we can experience today by the Holy Spirit. Jesus rose and ascended to give the Holy Spirit in this special way to his people. He promised that he would send the Spirit to replace his earthly presence. Jesus, the resurrected, glorified, bodily presence of Jesus is in heaven. And he sent the Spirit to be his presence here on earth, wherever people meet in Jesus' name. We can know the Spirit of Jesus himself filling our hearts with joy and love and hope. So Christians, as Paul tells us, live in this world by faith, not by sight. But as I said, it's not a blind faith. Our trust is in the Lord Jesus who lived here on planet Earth, who died in the springtime. There was that full moon coming up last night. Beautiful moon it was. There we are. That's the time when Jesus died, Passover time. And uh, he rose from the dead on the very day the first of the grain harvest was presented at the temple. He is the first fruits and the guarantee that all those who die, who sleep in Jesus, will be raised and have bodies like our Lord's resurrection body to live in that new creation. We are in some senses like the people of God in the Old Testament era. Hebrews tells us that Abraham and other fathers of Israel believed God's promises concerning the coming Messiah. Abram saw in his son a type of Christ, not only in offering him his only son, uh, but also in believing that God would raise him from the dead, which says Hebrews he did, in a sense, a figure of a sense, received him back from the dead on that Mount Moriah. He saw from afar. Jesus said about Abram, he rejoiced to see my day and saw it and was glad. He was looking forward and saw by faith. We look back on these happenings and we rejoice in the same Lord Jesus Christ. How much more, though, should we be glad now it's all come about? It's all happened. The fulfillment has occurred. Christ has died for our sins, was buried, rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, seen by many eyewitnesses. And all those who put their trust in him will never be disappointed. How glad we are to serve a risen conquering Savior this morning. What is more, we look forward to the day when we shall see him face to face and be like him. What is your position then this morning? Have you believed this wonderful truth that Jesus is alive from the dead, never more to die? Have you come to that position where you've humbled yourself and realized your need of him? Of course, we don't deserve a Savior, 
and yet God has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And he has died to save all those who put their trust in him, to save us from our sins and to bring us to God. And we are assured that there is forgiveness and that Christ's work on the cross was successful because Christ rose triumphant and lives to be the Savior of all who put their trust in him. Submit then to him now, dear friend, if you haven't done before, and believe. And in believing, you will see and you will appreciate all the wonders of God's saving mercy. What privileged people we are if we know this Son of God for ourselves and can say this morning with conviction, my Lord, my God. Amen. Number 239. I've chosen this not only because it's a great hymn with a great tune by Handel, but also uh, the third verse. No more we doubt thee. No more we doubt thee. May that be so. 239. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.